This is the Center for Medical Simulations, Critical Conversations with Mary Fay. I'm Jenny Rudolph. Mary, I'm really interested to talk with you about the application of your critical conversations framework in the context of classroom teaching and learning. I think a lot of us experiential educators are pretty comfortable in simulation. Those of you who are clinicians, very comfortable with teaching in the clinical context and may or may not have any training in classroom teaching. And so I think the possible application of the Critical Conversations Framework, which draws heavily on debriefing routines that many of us simulation folks are quite comfortable with, may provide a really nice scaffolding for us as educators in the classroom context. But still, I think there may be some challenges of applying it in this slightly different setting. So could you tell us a little bit about how you think about setting the context, analyzing the content, and then setting the future course in the classroom context? Let me give you an example. A class where we might be teaching nursing students about pain management, all of the options that are available and the contextual features that they need to think about when they're making decisions about how to help manage their patient's pain. Key to this, before we even get into context, content, and course, is thinking about creating the right environment in the classroom. There's been, uh, you know, the advent of technologies in the classroom with virtual simulations. We do things like flipping the classroom, and all of those technology-enhanced or flipped classroom approaches are great, but if the educator can't create the right environment and facilitate the right kind of conversation, those techniques become standalone techniques that really don't affect learning outcomes. So when I think about creating the right kind of environment in the classroom to have these conversations, one of the things that in my mind differentiates the classroom from clinical or simulation is the classroom is the place where you're often introducing brand new knowledge. Simulation clinical environments are places where you apply what's learned in the classroom. It's novel in that learners will really be struggling with new concepts in the classroom. There has to be an environment in which the learners feel safe to admit when they don't know something to seek help and to ask for clarification. And I think about the work of Amy Edmondson in calling that learning behaviors. And if we create an environment in which learners feel that they can do those things, they will learn more. And I think overall, it'll just be a more satisfying learning experience for both the educator and the learner. So let's think about context, content, and course in that kind of an environment. In context, again, it begins with sort of checking in on the learners, on their emotions. If I'm doing a course on pain management, they've done some pre-work, they've looked at pharmacology, they've maybe watched a video, whatever I've set them up to do, and the first thing I really should do is check in to see are they struggling to understand that content and clear up any misunderstandings because we can't hope to make any progress if they are still sort of upset and nervous about not really understanding the content. One of our colleagues, Rachel Onello, has done this work of setting the right environment in a classroom by telling the learners how she views them as meaning makers, how she sees her role in helping them with the meaning making process, and is really explicit about the idea that she holds them in high regard as learners who are sincerely trying to do a good job. Since Rachel has started to do that in our classroom, she talks about how now the threshold for learners to overcome admitting when they don't know something has really dropped and that her learners very frequently now will stop her in the middle of a lecture and say, Dr. Onello, can you please go back and explain that again? I really don't understand it, which is what every educator hopes. So that's an important part of the context in the classroom is really checking in on your learners and keeping your pulse on whether or not they're struggling. And then the next part of context is making sure that they understand all the relevant parts of whatever the topic happens to be, in this case, pain management. So we might want to hear them talk about different classes of pain meds, 
different side effects, what's used for acute pain management, what's used for more chronic pain management. So all those sort of contextual details that have bearing on nurses' decisions about pain management. So Mary, I want to just inquire about two things. Mm -hmm. One is a little whiff of skepticism that I'm feeling, and I could imagine more traditional hardcore educators. You know, I came up through a pretty demanding PhD program. I'm sure lots of you know, nurses and doctors listening to this came up through programs where their preceptors sure as heck didn't check in or care that much if they were struggling or having emotional confusion with reading. When you talk about trying to set an emotional context or meet the learners where they are regarding reading or knowledge, I hear voices in my head who might have spoken to me in the past saying, are you kidding me? Like, you know, what's the emotional risk there? Like, what are you really worried about? Mm, Great question. And uh, yeah, I had the same teachers you had, Jenny. So I get that. I think here's the risk. The classroom environment, unlike simulation and clinical, is often the place where people's progression in their program is riding on the outcome of what happens in the classroom. And so I think the emotional risk in the classroom is super high and one that as educators we often don't really appreciate because we think, well, they just need to memorize stuff and then my job is done. And to me, this goes back again to the idea of meaning-making in the teacher-learner relationship. I think that to have successful learning outcomes, we have to create a place where learners can come to us when they need help because that's what we're there for. And I think often as doctors and nurses, you know, we're naturally nurturers and we're healers and we're people who take care of each other. And it's always been curious to me how sometimes that stops in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And I think if we can take a lot of those values of wanting a therapeutic relationship and wanting to make a connection, wanting to make rapport that we have with our patients and transfer it to our learners, it can really enhance the teacher-learner relationship in a positive way. I think just being cognizant of how much is on the line for the learners can help us get in touch with the emotional risks that are present in the classroom. If we were to get sort of precise or, or, or very practical here then, Mm -hmm. I think what I hear you saying is that in the classroom, there's often a summative evaluation Mm -hmm. that's going to happen. You're going to get an A or a B or C, and that may determine in a way that the simulations don't, or perhaps your clinical rotation grade might not, the forward progression. Am I on the right track there? You're on the right track. I would never want to say that grades in clinical don't affect your progression, but in in the classroom, they do in a big way. Okay. So that that summative evaluation piece... Uh, raises the stakes. Mm -hmm. That being said, imagining that the learners have done a bunch of reading or watched some videos prior to coming to class, let's say Mm -hmm. I was doing a sort of flipped classroom, and now they've come in, they've read the materials on pain management in various contexts. What would the context setting regarding checking in with them emotionally look like? I totally, I think most people listening Mm -hmm. will totally get how to Mm -hmm. check in or what they might do around the knowledge piece, but Mm -hmm. help me on the emotional piece because I'm still a little skeptical that reading a book is going to have me have an emotional reaction that needs to get processed before it can get rolling. How about if I just give you an example of what I would do to start this class with my students who are, are, have done some prep work. I might start the class by saying, you all have read the materials that I posted you've watched the video on pain management. There are a lot of things that a nurse has to think about when managing pain in a patient. You need to think about, is this acute pain I'm managing short-term? This is chronic pain I'm managing long-term. What are my patient's comorbidities? What are the side effects and contraindications of all these drugs? It's a lot of material, guys. 
And I understand that while you read all that stuff, I don't expect you to know it today. Today is the day where we're going to synthesize and apply that information. And so as we go forward today, anytime things seem fuzzy to you, I want you to stop me right away and seek clarification. I expect you guys to do that because I don't expect you guys to know it all right now. This is our time to take the prep work you did and refine it and apply it. Now I think I understand this better. So it's not so much that they might have had an emotional reaction as they might in a sim or they might have been in a clinical situation and you're gonna help them process that. Mm -hmm. It's that you're really setting expectations Mm -hmm. as they come into the room. Mm -hmm. As a simulationista, I tend to think about that potentially as part of a pre-briefing or a Mm -hmm. refresh of my pre-briefing at the beginning of the debriefing. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you're refreshing or articulating some expectations Mm -hmm of having a forgiving environment, being interested in their thinking, mm-hmm. willing to help them work through the material, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, you know, and I put myself back in the seat of a learner, sitting there hoping, oh my God, I hope the professor doesn't call on me because I'm not really sure I know this. And so I think it's a way, as I would prep a student in that way, that's me acknowledging that there are some people in the classroom who are feeling that way and letting them know this is not about me calling you out in front of the crowd to see what you know and what you don't know. One of the things that I think is really different as I read your book on critical conversations in the classroom context from clinical and from simulation is part of the context setting process that relates to the patient's story or knowledge. And I could imagine as an educator trying to apply your method that I'd be a little confused about what do I do around knowledge and the patient's story in the context setting where in clinical and sim, I'm going to review the patient story, make sure we're on the same page with regard to the facts of the case. Mm-hmm. In the classroom, that whole discussion, I'm thinking, is the meat of the discussion. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to necessarily tip my hand or give mm-hmm. everything away at the beginning. So I was a little confused about what I should do there. Mm-hmm. What do I do in the mm-hmm. context versus what do I do in the content analysis? Mm-hmm. Could mm-hmm. you help me understand that? So in the context, you're right. They can't know all the nuanced details. I think that I would probably still though want to make sure that they were aware of kind of the big buckets of information that they would need to know as they set out to make decisions about pain management. So I would want to know that they're aware of the idea that there are different classifications of drugs we might use, narcotic, non-narcotic. I would also want them to know that there's non-pharmacologic ways to manage pain. I would want them to think about the categories of patients and how those categories might influence our choice of pain, for example, the developmental stage of the person. Is this a child? Is this a healthy young adult? Is this an elderly person? I would want them to understand that there are different comorbidities that might affect dosing of drugs. So kind of big buckets of information, but they can't know all the nuanced contextual parts of it because we'll get to that in the content part of the class because the content part of the class is all about taking what they did in their prep work and applying it to an actual patient setting. It sounds to me then that your critical conversations approach to setting the context here is kind of a mixture of bridging from what they read to what you're going to analyze together by somewhat previewing the big bucket. So we're going to talk about comorbidities, we're going to talk about life developmental stage, da 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 da, before you go ahead and dive in. Right. Okay, that sounds really, really useful. and, Mm -hmm. And I think those What I like about your approach is I think it really helps learners manage their cognitive load Mm -hmm. because if they're feeling really anxious about knowing that's taking up cognitive load Mm -hmm. and you're you're kind of trying to normalize that you might have read a lot of stuff and it's it's difficult and that's okay Mm -hmm. so I think that might reduce some anxiety and then 
you're going to help them know where they're going, which I think is also going to give them some predictability. And mm-hmm. so I think both those things help lower extraneous distractions and let them focus on the main work that you're mm-hmm. doing. Let's turn now to the content section of the classroom. I think having a vibrant seminar style discussion or whether it's a large class or a tutorial is a bit of an art and a bit of a science. Mm-hmm. I think it's difficult. And one of the things that I found encouraging about the Critical Conversations book is that it could allow a cohort of educators who'd studied debriefing and had a knowledge of that flow, they could import that into their classroom teaching somehow. But I don't think there's a one-for-one import because you don't have the simulation mm-hmm. to draw on. Right. So help us understand how do we flow through the content section of the conversation. So I think a lot of the principles of debriefing do transfer to classroom, but as you said, it's not one-on-one because it's not exactly the same. So the things to me that are the same that flow into the classroom are a genuine curiosity about the thought process of the learner so that we can understand where they are, the importance of reflection, and then some of the techniques we use within debriefing, which might be to compare and contrast and to sort of reflect into the future of how will I use this information. So all of those principles stay in the classroom. So to give an example, and we'll stick with pain management, what I might do in the classroom is present a case of a patient of a certain age. Let's say that it's an elderly person who's just had abdominal surgery and it's having acute pain postoperatively. I might use a technique like splitting my learners up into small groups so that they can do some small group work together and have one focus on the developmental stage of the patient and how does that affect our pain management decisions. I might have another group focus on classifications of drugs and give them a couple different choices that they could use for this patient. I might have another one think about side effects and what do I need to monitor the patient for after I give this medication. One of the things I really love about that small group work is the collaborative learning that happens. Any time that you've got a group of people who bring multiple perspectives to a situation, I think that they can really enrich each other's learning. While their learners are working in small groups, I would be going around posing sort of in-the-moment reflective questions to them, almost like we talked about pulse checks in clinical to help them think about, you know, this is the road you guys are going down. This is the choice that you're going to be making. Help me understand why you're making that choice. What are you seeing in this patient that's helping you make that choice? To me, that's part of kind of the art of teaching and debriefing is listening, knowing when to jump in with those questions, knowing how to manage those questions, how to interact with your learners. After that small group work, I would then bring them together in a larger group and have each person present their piece, but then you can play those pieces off of each other. So these folks thought that this was the right way to go. These folks thought that this might be the right way to go. Let's try and understand each other's thinking so that we can see how these situations are so nuanced. And now we start pulling in all those contextual details that we didn't really do in the context part because now we're dealing with an actual patient in an actual situation with a very specific diagnosis. So you've got a, essentially sort of a problem-based learning format onto which they're bringing the pre-reading or pre-videos that they watched. In the introduction to Critical Conversations, you and Sue Forneris talk about the importance of meaning-making as a paradigm shift for the educators and also the discipline of helping learners be critical. Mm -hmm. In the example that you just gave of having subgroups working together, Mm -hmm. it strikes me that there's some visible curriculum to the learners around the patient and the application of comorbidities or 
different categories of medications, et cetera. There seems to be another maybe less obvious part of the curriculum around the fact that they are all making meaning and that they are having to critique the care of this particular patient presented in the problem-based context. Mm. Could you talk to me a little bit about how you see strengthening meaning-making or strengthening getting critical in the context of that example you gave? Mm -hmm. What's happening there for the Mm -hmm. learners? I think pain management is a great example because it can be really infused with people's sort of personal biases and values and even cultural beliefs around pain management. And so when I think about being critical, I think about being aware of our biases and taking for granted assumptions that cause us to make certain decisions in in certain ways. Can you give an example? Sure. So I may have come from a culture, and when I say culture, it could even be just family values. I may have come from a culture where the belief is suck it up, don't be a crybaby, you can get through this. And if I come from that culture, then I'm going to sort of be a minimalist when it comes to pain management. If I grew up in a family that believed not so much in Western approaches to care, but a more Eastern approach to care, I might be much more interested in non-pharmacologic approaches to pain management. And my first choice might not be to use narcotics. And all of those beliefs are valid. They can have bearing on situations in ways that are really meaningful. So I'm not saying one is right and one is wrong. What I'm saying is that, especially as healthcare practitioners, we have to be aware of what we bring to the situation and be aware of what's influencing our choices and our decisions. And part of that small group discussion to me is all those different people bringing all their different values to the situation so that we understand what influences us when we make decisions. We also have to be aware that our patients have those same assumptions and beliefs and values, and that needs to be incorporated in the care too. And so when I think about being critical and making meaning, I would tie those two together to say these values and assumptions and beliefs we have affect the data we see, the data that we believe is relevant, and the decisions that we make based on that data. People in the small groups then talk about the kinds of things that you're sharing their own family beliefs with respect to pain management, perhaps, and trying to elicit what is the patient's beliefs around pain management, for example. The thing that I didn't hear you talk about that seemed to be an outcome that you and Sue Forneris were driving toward in critical conversations, I know I and you and other colleagues here at the Center for Medical Simulation really tried to drive toward is developing my muscles as a reflective practitioner, getting stronger by doing the equivalent of push-ups on bystanding. You know, I've said something and I've thought something, and now I need to strengthen my ability to recognize that I've said something and thought something. I think the classroom potentially is a really important place to do that because often there's a little bit more time. And I'm wondering when you have a small group session like that, what are the moves you make? What are the disciplines you apply? Maybe it's over time in the whole semester where you strengthen their muscles of bystanding their own thinking and recognizing their ability to be critical about their own thinking. To me, it's just making their thinking explicit. I think the other thing is hearing multiple perspectives so we can bounce those off people. Another thing is taking their values and beliefs and applying them through the whole decision-making process so that they can see the outcome, how those beliefs might affect the decisions they've made. You're forcing them in a positive way to reflect on their thinking and so on. It seemed to me that you and Sue Forneris 
and many of us committed to reflective practice as a valuable part of improving patient safety and quality and even the quality of educational conversations such that they're more vibrant and life-affirming in a certain mm-hmm. way, if I might you know, be so bold. However, involves almost going meta mm-hmm. to the reflection. As I read your book, I saw a really strong commitment to that. Mm-hmm. And so I'm trying to figure out, as a classroom teacher, mm-hmm. how do I support that development of a bystanding Mm -hmm. witness quality uh, as a nursing student or a medical student? How do I start being able to sort of observe and witness my own thought processes and also strengthens my ability to know that I'm a meaning maker? I think that's a a long-term process. It doesn't happen in a class. And so I think a couple of things that are important to me there are sort of the culture of the whole organization. If I'm a classroom teacher who's doing this in isolation in one class, in one course, over a whole curriculum, it can be much more of a challenge. Whereas if this reflective approach to teaching is something that they meet in the classroom, in the clinical, and in simulation, all of us are working together to help them, A, reflect. The other thing we're doing is we're role modeling how important reflection is every time we engage in it with our students. It makes me think of the the book that Patricia Benner published in 2010 about calling for radical transformation in nursing education. And one thing that she says is, we so separate classroom learning from clinical learning and learning in the simulation lab, and we shouldn't do that. That the learner should be exposed to the same sorts of teaching techniques across all of those different contexts of learning. And that's one of the strong messages from critical conversations and from the debriefing vision statement from the National League for Nursing is these debriefing techniques are not just for simulation, but they should be everywhere. As educators, we should be role modeling the importance of reflection by helping them reflect. We should also be role modeling by reflecting ourselves, by inviting feedback from our students, by asking our students what's working well, what's not working well, and reflecting with them on our practice, because then we're really role modeling that we value being practitioners as we are uh, reflective practitioners in our own educational practice. Let's uh, shift gears then finally and talk a little bit about course in mm-hmm. the classroom, which is the term that you and Sue Furnaris and Critical Conversations talk about as the prescriptions for future practice or thinking about future practice or projecting mm-hmm. the work that's been done into future practice. Mm-hmm. How do you handle that in the classroom context? There's two different maneuvers or educational techniques that I think can be helpful here. After the bulk of the classroom, when we're working on the context part and thinking about managing pain, to set the course for future practice, I would get them to think about what we talked about today with regard to this particular patient and think about next time you go to your clinical rotation when you're faced with a pain management decision, what are the steps that you'll go through as you make your decision? So just getting them to sort of make it real and take it out of the classroom and your patient calls and says they need pain medicine, what are the steps you're going to go through cognitively as you're making your decision? And then I think equally helpful is to get them to think about a contrasting case. So today we talked about Mr. Smith post-op patient, acute pain that he rated to 7 out of 10, you manage it that way. What if your patient next week is Mrs. Jones, and she's a 65-year-old woman who's had rheumatoid arthritis for 10 years, and she's managing pain on a more long-term chronic basis? How does that affect the decisions you make? So part of it is apply what we know today, and another part of it is contrast that with something you might face that's different 
So the principles are the same. We think about the developmental stage of the patient, the options we have available, the side effects, the comorbidities. So the big buckets of information are the same, but the decisions we make within those buckets are a little bit different. This might be a little nitpicky and reflect my own sort of rigid mental model about the last phase of this conversation. But I think about those kind of compare and contrast challenges as happening more in the regular analysis phase. Mm -hmm and less in the bridge to future practice. Mm -hmm. But maybe it's just not such a bright line, or maybe you see it differently. Mm -hmm. Can you, you know, for people who are coming out of a debriefing context, they're like, I'm going to do some kind of, uh, you know, reactions or orientation phase. I'm going to do some sort of analysis phase, and Mm -hmm. then I'm going to do some sort of a summary phase. Uh, When I hear you mention compare Mm -hmm. and contrast, and what Mm -hmm. I think of as a summary phase, my my brain starts going, not the right thing. So help me help me clarify my thinking for classroom teaching. Yeah. So two things. I agree with you. It's not always a bright line because sometimes in the content part of the critical conversations when we're helping them think through a situation, compare and contrast can be really helpful. I think it's also really helpful in the content phase because in the same way that we do what are your takeaways in a simulation and it provides us a check back on did we achieve our learning objectives, When I get to the course stage, if I can have them do a contrasting case, it can really help me see if indeed I've still met my learning objectives in that they can pick and choose the information that we've gone through in the class and see how it applies in different situations. And how about the kind of goals or prescriptions for future practice? How do you handle that? So I think that what happens in the classroom is not an isolated event and I think there is a lot of value in having learners do longer-term reflection so a longer-term sort of reflective writing assignment I think can be really helpful it extends the reflection it might help to bring up new questions Mary as I and other colleagues think about applying the critical conversations approach to the classroom context what are the unique aspects what's different in classroom teaching from clinical or simulation when we apply the 3C approach. Mm-hmm. So I think there are some features to critical conversations in the classroom that are unique. With regard to setting the context, the emotional stakes are not quite as high because there are no patients at risk. I also think that, and we talked about this a little bit, in making sure that all the relevant details are there and we have the whole patient story. This is new information that the learners are struggling with. They may not be able to articulate that well at the beginning. And with regard to context, again, the information that they're grappling with is brand new. You also have the luxury of time in the classroom, and so there's much more time spent explaining, describing, and really teaching. It's not really about application at this point. It's about ensuring their understanding and setting them up for when they will apply it later in clinical. And in setting the course, I think the strategies you use are very similar, but I think in the classroom, it's not, it can't be isolated to the classroom, again, because they're grappling with new material. And so thinking about how you're going to follow up the classroom with extending the learning, with extended reflection, also with testing that comes after classroom content, I think is also very important just to ensure that that theoretical content is in their head so that they're ready for application later. And then how about the issue of psychological safety, which we've spoken about a little bit in the other contexts. Could you just say a few words about what do you think are most important for classroom teachers to consider in that? Yeah, I think I think what's most important is allowing for the fact that your learners, even though they may have done their pre-work, will still come 
just not knowing the content and certainly not knowing how to sift through the content and understand what's really salient and what's the highest priority. You know, we have this tendency to give them 150 page reading assignments and then they should magically somehow know what's important and what's not important in those 150 pages. So I think we have a huge role in, and Patricia Benner calls this teaching for a sense of salience. We have to help them understand what's important that they need to pay attention to and what's not important that they don't. Can you help me connect the dots between teaching for a sense of salience and psychological safety? Because I'm imagining there's some link in your mind, but I didn't quite see it there. Yeah, thanks. There is definitely some link in my mind. You know, I think about the burden that medical students, nursing students, pharmacy students have and the amount of new information they're grappling with. And I admit I was one of these teachers who sort of belongs to what I would call the mean girls club where we just somehow expect our learners to magically know things without a struggle. And so to me, first of all, them trying to discern from a 150-page reading assignment what's really relevant and what's the most salient is a really difficult thing to do. They're going to struggle with that. We need to give them permission to struggle. And actually, in my mind, I welcome the struggle. I think there's value in the struggle. I think when things are really hard and they think hard about them and we help them puzzle through it, there's so much value. But if we don't create a space where they can admit that they don't know, where they admit that they're struggling, we'll never get there with them. I see. So as the learner in a course, I'm swimming through a vast ocean of new vocabulary and connections and whatnot, and I have to feel comfortable that it's okay that I'm struggling, Mm -hmm. and that as I struggle, I can ask my peers or my mentors or my teacher for help. And by working toward creating a context that is psychologically safe through a variety of things that you discuss in the book, such as pre-briefing and Mm -hmm. modeling, fallibility, and a variety of other things, the learners can more robustly struggle and learn and not feel shame or not feel wrong for not knowing. Exactly. You know, I think about Carol Dweck's work here about a fixed versus an open mindset. And I think as educators, if we can set up the kind of environment where we praise hard work and incremental progress rather than achievement, that's another way that we can really set the right kind of environment. And, you know, to me, the greatest reward as a teacher is when my learners feel free to stop me in the middle of a sentence and say, hang on one second, I have no idea what you're talking about. To me, that's a great compliment. Well, Mary, thank you so much for taking the time today. I just really have enjoyed this conversation and my excitement about the direction you're going with this Critical Conversations book and the impact that it might have. So thank you so much for spending time with me. Thanks, Jenny. It's been fun.